I'm happy to be here to introduce the session as part of DXE Technology, which is likely one of the largest IT companies in the globe you've never heard of. It's easiest to describe what DXC does as, as if it's something you can think of in the IT space. We do it for someone somewhere in the world. My name is Terry Gunning. I'm a senior managing partner at DXC, and we have over 130,000 people around the world with over 200 of those people here in Victoria. I was happy when Emily and the team asked me to introduce this topic as a big part of the work I'm doing with my colleagues here and around the world is to determine how we find innovative ways to continue to support the needs of citizens around the world at the same time as putting the collective impact of those services in the context of ESG and climate change. With that in mind, it's my pleasure to introduce you to our moderator, Chris Kennedy. Chris is the Associate Director of the Pacific Institute for Climate Sciences. He is the inaugural chair of the new Green Civil Engineering Department at the University of Victoria. Chris has worked on greenhouse gas accounting and abatement strategies for global cities, national governments, and multinational institutions, including as a comment to the OECD. Chris is a member of the Global Cities Institute at the University of Toronto and UVic's Institute for Integrated Energy Systems. He is the author of The Evolution of Great World Cities, Urban Wealth, and Economic Growth. Thank you, and over to you, Chris. Thank, thank you for the introduction, Terry, and uh, thank you for supporting this, this session of the conference. Uh, as, it's, as it's already been described, this session is about the search that which is intensifying for finding clean alternatives to fossil fuels. That's looking at technologies from wind power to green hydrogen. And what we've assembled today is a, an expert panel to take a deep look at what is possible and practical and how we speed up uh, innovation to meet critical net zero goals. Uh, in a moment, I will turn things over to our speakers, but first a quick sort of overview of the format. Uh, after giving a number of questions to our speakers, about halfway through the conversation, we will turn over to questions uh, from, the, from the audience. Uh, and you can submit questions anytime through the Zoom Q&A uh, below this video. Uh, the session is being recorded, and you can submit your questions anonymously if you prefer. To interact with attendees, you can use the Zoom or Wover chat. Uh, the production team, uh, who's, who's online, will uh, monitor the Wover chat and the Q&A for those joining us through the app. And uh, finally, if you're posting your takeaways to social media, please use the hashtag at Rising Economy 2022. So with that, I will now uh, introduce the, uh, the three speakers that are joining me on the panel today. Uh, and the first one is uh, Dr. Brad Buckham, and I should note that two of them are colleagues of mine at the University of Victoria, so including Brad and Chris. Brad works to improve the designs and operating strategies for offshore technologies using com computer simulations. His work focuses on, uh, on two particular technologies, that's remotely operated vehicles used in deep sea explorations, and number two, moored wave energy converters. Uh, over the past 15 years, uh, Dr. Brookham's research group has evolved simulation software that can be used to design and study these systems. And, and Brad, as well as being, I think he's the chair of mechanical engineering just now, he's also the uh, director of the West Coast Wave Initiative, where much of this work is uh, coming from. And he's involved, it's a foundation for resource knowledge, uh, community engagement, and technical know-how that's used for partners throughout British Columbia. Our second speaker is uh, Dr. Christoph Heuker who is a Canada Research Chair in Urban Planning for Climate Change. And Chris is an Associate Professor in Geography and, and also uh, 
uh, in civil engineering at the uh, University of Victoria. So she's a once or a colleague of mine directly, just to, to be clear on that. Chris uh, is chair on Urban Planning for Climate Change. Uh, sorry, you see your bio is the same as your, your, your uh, explanation there. To get into, Chris is going to explain more about what she does in her answers to the question, but to give it succinctly, she studies the diffusion of low carbon innovations and renewable energy and the justice in particular and socioeconomic uh, benefits of a renewable energy transition. Our third speaker today is uh, Dave Bennett, who's the director of renewable gas and low carbon fuels with, with Fortis BC. Uh, Dave is responsible for providing leadership for growing Fortis BC's renewable energy portfolio. He uh, led the team that developed the first renewable natural gas program in North America, uh, introduced in 2011. And he rejoined the team in the last year to lead the transition of natural gas of the natural gas system to a low carbon future. Before that, or in the last 35 years of industry experience, Dave has held positions with Shell Canada, West Coast Energy, as well as Fortis BC. He's a director on the Surrey Board of Trade, private sector co-chair of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, and a board member with BC Bioenergy Network. So um, welcome all three of you. It's great to have such great, great guests with us today. So I'm going to start with the, the first question, if you three are all set. Uh, the first question. Uh, so there are different opinions of, on the renewable energy mix for our future, and perhaps no silver bullets. Having said that, there are energy types that appear to be more or less available, reliable, cost-effective, and plug-in-play. In your opinion, opinions, because this will go to all three of you, which types of energy, uh, electric, biofuels, nuclear, hydrogen, alternative fuels, will play the biggest role in BC's renewable energy future? And I'm, I'm going to go first to, to Brad on this one. Uh, you want to ask your thoughts, Brad? Yeah, no, excellent. Thanks, Chris. Um, well, I think it's fair to say that BC's committed to electricity as, as an energy commodity. And if I look at uh, the ways that we can diversify our electricity supply, then I, you know, I'll admit that I turn towards renewables first. Uh, I'm not an expert on some of the new nuclear technologies that are, that are coming out. Um, but if we look at the renewables mix, um, I'm going to further admit that I get a bit myopic and focus in on green. And I think the introduction you gave me earlier <laughs> explains why I tend to do that. Um, and if we look at British Columbia and our coastline, you know, the dominant renewable energy source is, is actually wave energy. And even on the calmest summer day off of Vancouver Island, where we are now, um, the wave energy, uh, the power density coming in is, is an order of magnitude higher than solar. So, you know, moving forward, if we accept that, you know, we need to increase our electricity supply, um, that we need to diversify the modes of that supply. I think concentrating anything uh, or on any one option too much will lead to acute pressure points. Um, we've all seen black box uh, analyses looking at solar PV. If we wanted to install enough PV panels, although their cost of energy might be good in terms of what amplitude they can pump out, there is a, an impact, you know, footprint that they have. Um, and so I think, as he said, there's no silver bullet and we need to um, spread, you know, spread out across the options we have. And the one that I think has the most promise simply largely because it hasn't been tapped at all is, is to look to the marine side. So um, I'm keen to see us adopt some of the, the steps that have been taken in other jurisdictions um, in Scotland, Portugal in the past, uh, even in Chile, uh, to be honest, uh, stepped forward a bit more than we have in regards to, to marine options and supplies. So 
um, definitely something I'd like to see us do a little bit more. Great. Thanks, Ben. Chris, do you want to come in on that? Because you've looked at renewable technologies in, in different contexts, right? So. Yeah. So actually, one of my research grants is about something called renewable energy clusters. And so um, I would agree with Brad totally and build on that and say that what we're really going to need to see is a variety of technologies that are going to really depend on local community assets and histories and context. So, for example, We'll have marine energy where we can site it, but we'll have solar uh, power where it's um, sunnier and, you know, also in places where we can site it. Um, and we're also going to have to have, though, a blend of what are called flexibility technologies. So, for example, this could be storage of energy and this could also be things like demand response. So changing our response, how much energy we need when we have more power or less power. Um, and one of the reasons why we need to cluster these technologies is that that's how we can get balancing in the system. And also it can actually drive down the system costs. So one example of this is that if you have solar and wind, um, it can be windy at night when there's no sun. It can be sunny in the day when there's no wind. And uh, so they're complementary to each other. And so we have a more, a less variable source of power. But what that can do on a system with storage is that it can actually reduce the costs of storage uh, because you have a less variable source of energy supply. It can also increase the amount of energy that can go onto a grid. So uh, variety, local assets, no one solution fits all, um, but having a as wide a range of technologies as possible that are on the market. And those clusters can also potentially bring in new technologies as they emerge. Great. Thanks, Chris. So, uh, Dave, did you want to, did you want to comment on this? Because you've got a slightly different perspective coming from Fortis BC. So it'd be interesting to see how you, your take on this. Yeah. No, sure. It's, um, yeah, it really is. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're modeling, um, and we've, we've been through a series of working through like looking at the energy systems, the investments we make last 30, 40 years. So modeling the energy systems of the province and trying to get a little bit of a view into, you know, what, what the future might, might like and, and what it, what it seems we're going to need all these things. I mean, if you think of, if you think of just transitioning off liquid petroleum fuels in vehicles, it's, it's a monumental amount of energy that goes into that and replacing all that with something else, you know, whether it's biofuels, electricity, or, you know, um, other things like hydrogen and um, it's, it's going to need all these things. But um, it was, it was interesting. Chris's point about, um, you know, as we transition, it does change the way the system works. Like we tend to always think of, Oh, well, we'll just do everything exactly the same way we've always done it. And our, for instance, our gas system and our electricity systems are generally built to, you know, bring energy from a long way away into populated areas. And, um, I think those will, those will transform. One of the things I'm working on right now is, you know, how do we incorporate hydrogen into our gaseous mix? So, um, you know, we transport natural gas around right now, which obviously being a fossil fuel is something we're going to have to, Think about, you know, how do we transition away from that? But you can't just build a hydrogen system where you, you know, 
duplicate the entire natural gas system. So, um, you know, building hubs where you can introduce both close couple to demand and the supply um, will be important, um, important ways of getting there. And, um, and also this idea of well, people, when they switch on their lights or they, you know, turn on their furnace, they don't think about all the work that goes behind trying to balance the system. So as you introduce new things like, hydrogen or wave energy or solar energy, you have to balance that onto the system because the system's not designed, you know, necessarily to deal with that. So um, that's another area in the utility space that we're really, um, that we're really looking closely at. I, I would say one of the areas, and I mentioned is hydrogen, very interesting when you start looking at it because you can transform it into electricity and you can use it as an electricity storage medium as well. So, it may actually provide a bridge into some of these technology. Like think about, you know, wind energy somewhere where it's not terribly useful, turning that into hydrogen and moving it through a pipe and then turning it back into electricity somewhere else. You know, there's, there's new things that will evolve here from in the system. And I know I often get, well, you're, Dave, you're thinking about moving hydrogen around, you know, how are people going to use hydrogen in their furnaces? Well, we might not combust you know, things anymore in the future. We might have a fuel cell on the side of our house that makes electricity and heat. So I think it's it's really interesting. Lots of different technologies, and we should be open to looking at all the different ones. So there's a bit of a, a common theme beginning to develop here. I mean, Brad was talking about sort of, you know, higher density for wave energy, where, where you've got waves, right, compared to where you've got sun. And, and Chris, I think Part of what I got from what you said, we're talking about, it's sort of place-based is, 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 is one of the, the key things that came through. And, and it's really interesting as well, because David, you mentioned hubs and, and the way the history of technology, of energy transitions is it's it happened in certain places that sort of other leaders and, and, you know, the history of electricity, the way it started in cities and then went sort of province or state and nationwide. So that kind of leads us into a second question. Uh, and we should maybe we're going to deepen this talk, this discussion here a little bit. So cities and communities have an important role in, in charting a path to meeting Canada's Paris commitments and becoming 100 percent renewable cities. Uh, they also face distinct challenges depending on their local economy, resources and political climate. So how do we ensure one cities, but two smaller communities, because they're a little different, uh, don't get left behind in particular smaller communities? How, don't, how do they don't, not get left behind? Uh, and how do they, and avoid, we want to avoid, uh, facing, uh, disproportionate economic difficulties. So, uh, I'm going to go to you first one on this one, Chris, if I may. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I might talk too long on this, so you'll have to stop <laughs> me if I'm, if I'm just saying too much. This is actually the topic of my Canada research chair. And we recently completed a study about this where we said, well, how would, cities go 100% renewable energy and what would be the impact on the city, but also on surrounding communities. And what we found is that there will be an impact on surrounding communities, and we're already um, seeing those impacts. And um, surrounding communities uh, in a lot of places are actually supplying renewable energy to cities. And there's a lot of these new economic relationships that are developing between cities and regions. So, for example, sometimes cities are investing in renewable energy to be built in surrounding regions so that that renewable energy can be used in cities. And so then how do we make sure that um, people are not left behind? So 
Um, when you look at how much investment will go into this transition, it's in the hundreds of trillions of dollars globally. There's a lot of money that's going to go into this. And so one um, way to make sure that we have fairness in socioeconomic benefits and not leaving people behind is to share those benefits with communities. And so one of the interesting things about social acceptance is that it's actually tied to fairness and transparency of process in terms of how these projects are rolled out, but also fairness and transparency in terms of the local benefits. So, for example, um, local benefits could be local revenues. Uh, it could be through the involvement of municipalities. Um, and so this could actually become a whole new um, revenue stream and local economic development stream for a lot of regional areas and also for cities, and it could strengthen those economic relationships. But it would have to be done well, and it really depends on the business models and the governance structures that we use. Great, thanks. Maybe I'll, 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 I'll go to you next, Dave, but let me, I'll throw something in, and you can either take it or leave it if you like, but I'm just thinking about the work you do on renewable natural gas, which would be an example where the renewable, the, bio, the biogas is being generated out in these, these distant rural communities, and then coming into the city. So that would be an example of what Chris had just, just spoke about. I, I don't know whether that's something you, you might want to bring into your thoughts on, on this question. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, um, utilities like uh, Fortis and, and BC Hydro and other, other entities that span the province. And we, we have a bit of a unique, um, situation where we do touch on a lot, lot of different places. And, and this is, is a good example. Like when, you know, we know that a lot of the communities that we serve, they don't have the same resources that a Vancouver or Victoria would have. Um, and they still want to engage in these kinds of conversations and, and, and work through these same issues. So, you know, we, we try to be a bit agnostic, um, to it. And, and I think it, what happens is that you, each community is different and, you know, and it is a good example is the renewable, Gas. I mean, our first projects were out in those communities, partially because that's where the resource was, but also partly because, you know, they're very easy to work with. They're, they're quite keen on, on, um, on working on these challenges. And our first project was in the Fraser Valley and agricultural, um, project and at the Salmon Arm, um, landfill, which is out in the, uh, North Shushwap regional district. So, you know, you, we shouldn't ignore the, that, they can be a very big part of innovation because they are quite willing to to work with um and they maybe don't have some of the distractions some of the bigger company uh, bigger entities have as well um one of the things that we did as a company to try to help we created a program called, called climate action partners and it allows communities to actually apply for funding it's not permanent funding but if you have a project or something that you wanted to work on related to climate that you could, you know, get some support from the utility in terms of looking at that particular issue. So it's been it's been very popular. It's rolled in and out of different communities. Great, thanks. And then, so Brad, I mean, uh, again, you're, with your work on marine, which is often out in remote communities, have you have you seen the economic benefits of this? Or have you seen studies of the economic benefits that those communities would receive from from engaging in this? Well, we haven't seen the projects develop yet to really observe the real world benefits. We see a lot of desire. Um, I think Dave said the word keenness. Um, and, and the communities that we work with on the coast are extremely passionate 
about clean energy and, and their communities that are ready to, you know, engage in what's necessary to do significant transformation. And, and the mentality that I've witnessed talking with community leaders in those spots, it's, it's quite distinct than what I'm used to in my day to day and the communities that I live in, the people that I engage with more often than not. Um, and so when you ask the question, like, how do we make sure that, that communities like this aren't left behind? I guess at least in the marine space that I dabble in, um, I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it, it, it inherently the, the advantages are with those communities. And Krista and, and Dave mentioned earlier that, you know, renewables are geographically specific. And, and again, for the domain I work in, we're going to the coast and in BC, when you go to the coast, ironically, um, you're walking away from the main hydroelectric grid. Right, the coastal mountains we decided long ago, apparently somebody did that we were never going to cross those. <laughs> and so we end up with a lot of communities that are diesel reliant. Um, and ironically, these also happen to be communities where, um, culturally, uh, there's, there's, um, a hallowed connection with the ocean and a strong desire to get away from pollution, both noise and emissions. And so they want to take these steps and they're sitting on top of the resource that, that's rich and, and waiting to be extracted. Um, in terms of the province moving forward, I think we're really dependent on these communities to take these steps. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that their demands, their energy demands are on about the scale that marine energy technologies are working at right now. We're not really what we would call a commercial, you know, fully commercialized sector yet. We say pre-commercial. And so the scale of these devices is a good match for those communities. And so there's potential to grow together both technology developers and these communities who would be owner operators uh, where they are right now, their own microgrids. And so as that technology matures and that industry matures, uh, I mean, we're dependent on, on people in those communities, given they are what we call remote um, to, to own and operate and then perfect how we use those devices. If you do that locally, I mean, it puts you in a position to capitalize on the scale up that would follow, you know, after that point. So I think where a lot of people struggle is the idea that for marine energy to take root in BC and really have an impact, that scale up uh, will quickly, uh, in terms of the supply, it will quickly outpace the demands of the communities that are sitting on the on the coast right now using it. And so then we get into this this conundrum of what do we do with that excess energy over the course of a typical year? And, and Dave talked about hydrogen. I think we have to be willing, you know, the greater populace to work with those communities to put the infrastructure in place so that energy can be held on to put in the form of a commodity that can be transported and then used to the benefit of, you know, uh, the greater population. So if we have a wave energy plant off of Uquad on Nootka Island, which right now has a year-round population of three, maybe at some point that year-round population is 30 or 300. And then the question is, if, if the energy uh, being delivered and, and harvested there is good for, you know, 3,000 or 300,000 people, um, how do we work with those communities to get that energy into a spot where it can be used by that by that greater population? So I think the communities have that vision. It's it's the people on the receiving side that have to be convinced that this can be done. So I'm, I'm going to pick up on a couple of things you said there, uh, all of you, but in particular at the end, you know, you mentioned the fact that marine energy hasn't really happened yet. And you also mentioned that if it did happen, there'd be an excess and we could generate hydrogen from that, but then we would need infrastructure for that. So that sort of turns around to sort of the question of developing infrastructure systems and the governance required. So his, his question, as we chart Canada's transition to a decarbonized energy system, there are so many infrastructure systems to consider. 
uh, it seems that as much technology, there is a fundamental governance, governance challenge. So there's a governance challenge beyond the technology challenge. So what type of governance is needed to coordinate across these infrastructure systems, you know, transport buildings, electricity, water? That's that's the question. And so uh, I'll go to you first, Dave, on this one. Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge. I, I must say lots of people are critical of governments, but I do actually think, you know, they've, there's been some good bones of things being put in place, like the low carbon fuel standard here in BC is really driving a lot of adoption of low carbon fuels in transportation because it's creating incentives. But, um, you know, the, one of the things that, that I always, um, counsel is, is that regulators and governments should, should look at outcomes because often, um, and regulating that. And, and I think things like the low carbon fuel standard are an excellent example of that. Um, it's, it's showing that they want renewables in, introduced into the transportation fuel market, but it's not really prescriptive about what fuel, what those fuels are. It could be electricity, could be gaseous fuels, could be other biofuels. That, that's a good example of, um, because there's always this temptation to be very prescriptive. Like you must, um, use this particular thing. And we, we're seeing this more and more, you know, people saying, well, we don't want gas because it's, it's bad. Well, natural gas is, has carbon in it. So yes, we need to do something about that. But, you know, the pipe that's actually delivering it might be useful for something. And I, I use that as an example, but there's all kinds of other, other things that I think, um, if we just focus on what we want to see, that would be a better outcome, then um, actually a lot of time and money can be spent on on governments getting involved in, you know, picking picking winners, which is not necessarily a good <laughs> good thing. Thanks, Dave. Like, I, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. The, the point about the pipe can carry other things. I'm, I'm going to come to Chris next, and, and I'm, I'm just thinking and you can say as much as you wish to here, but I'm thinking you've done an awful lot of work in Europe, right? So you, you, you see a different, a different domain, a different governance. I and mean, you may not be an expert in the governance, but what's, what's your sense of, of, of how things are different in Europe than they are here? If that's a fair question, it's a bit of a surprise to you, I know. <laughs> I'm totally happy for that surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah, things are different. So uh, one of the things I've been working on, um, related to Europe, is that um, there's a new uh, there's a new set of regulations around renewable energy uh, um, to support and promote renewable energy. And so, as a lot of us know, about you know 25 years ago, there was something called a feed-in tariff that was um, a regulation that was designed to support renewable energy being um, connected to the grid. And that was replicated in over 100 countries, extremely successful in Vietnam, by the way, where they had, you know, a perfect storm of regulations to have one of the biggest scale ups of solar ever. Um, totally worth looking at. Um, and what they're regulating for now is around these renewable energy clusters. They call them energy communities and renewable energy communities. Um, and they can have a range of tech, including combining gas um, and um, potentially hydrogen and uh, all kinds of renewable tech and flexibility. And so um, what they're looking at for that is what would be the ownership structure of these types of clusters? Because these clusters could exist at a local community level with a lot of prosumers 
uh, they, which is a consumer who also sells energy. Um, it could be on a microgrid. It could be based across a range of locations. And some of the questions that we started raising were things like, well, a solar development might be, you know, further from a wind development. What's the proximity of these? How will these be different in cities or in rural areas? How will they connect to the grid? And what's happening is um, this legislation is being implemented in all of the EU member states right now with a variety of, um, of different outcomes. And in terms of ownership, what I think is really interesting about it is that um, there's this recognition that you'll get more social acceptance if you have communities who are engaged and oftentimes owning infrastructure. This is a trend happening right now with Indigenous and First Nations communities in Canada. But also um, this legislation allows for combined ownership with municipalities, small and medium enterprises, and also with incumbent energy utilities. But no um, type of entity can have more have a controlling share and oftentimes limited to about 30 percent. So that's a really interesting new model to bring together utilities um, and um and citizens and small and medium enterprises and, and businesses. Uh, so that's um, a, a new model for energy transitions that's happening. And I do anticipate that it's going to be looked at and potentially replicated in a lot of other places outside the EU, just like the feed-in tariff was. Um, and then in terms of how would that apply here? What are some of the lessons here? Well, one of the things that just happened in Ontario was that a lot of different First Nations were brought together and um, came together for equity ownership of a transmission line for electricity. Uh, in terms of what Brad's talking about, having these resources that are far away, um, if we start thinking about electrification and heat pumps, uh, electrification of vehicles and heat pumps and all of these new um, needs for electricity, we may have to put in more transmission lines, and we're really going to have to start thinking about who are the different players who are going to be investing in these new infrastructures and governing them. And I don't think it's going to be just the utility. I think communities are going to need to be invested, municipalities, um, band councils, and Indigenous Economic Development Corporations, a range of, of different um, groups. Yeah, I, I Chris. Sorry, Chris, if I may just pick up on that, I know I'm interrupting Brad, but that that example you used was an excellent example because that actually is a Fortis com uh, partnership with First Nations. So that transmission line on Ontario is called Wate Nakiniap, and it's 23 First Nations, and it's majority First Nation owned, which was for a utility, I can tell you, <laughs> a big step. And um, they actually have the option of buying out that that partnership in the long run. I mean, we're motivated to try and be the best partners, but um, it's it's a great example of what what could happen in the future. So I thought I just and the interesting thing is one of the folks in our Indigenous Relations Group here in British Columbia actually went out and worked on that first consultation because we had experience. We have an LNG plant on Vancouver Island that's partially. Um, Indigenous owned as well. So that was kind of our first toe in the water. And then Watinikini app is obviously a much larger project, but that's a, it's part of the Fortis group of companies that's doing that. 
No, th- yeah, thanks for that. And it's, it's totally cool to interject. I totally <laughs> appreciate the fluidity. I was actually going to do a little one myself, actually. I was just going to continue with this topic of electrification because one of the dangers is if we electrify everything is that we become vulnerable to the climate change effects. And so you can't have all the electricity come from big wires. You've got to have some local generation so that you can survive the, the loss of the major grid. But uh, maybe I should... Brad, maybe we should turn to you. Did you have any reflections on this topic? Um, of infrastructure yeah, no, I'm just enjoying listening to what Chris and, and Dave have to say. Um, just, just not to add on, it's not new, but maybe just to rephrase. And again, I admit I look at things through this marine lens a lot, but, um, you know, the, the, at a policy level or at a, at a governmental level in terms of funding, I mean, to make these transitions is expensive. What was that number you threw out, Chris? It was a big one. There was lots of zeros earlier. What Brilliant, I heard. <laughs> and, and we need the the power of uh, a public purse to to make these things happen at grand scale. But I, I I worry that government, when they step in right now, look for maybe not a silver bullet in the type of technology, but the size of the project. That and this goes to what Chris was saying about acceptance and about a myriad of community-owned projects. You know, where people feel pride, pride is engendered in the community. Um, you know, these things are smaller scale. Like, like on the marine side, development stagnates in Canada because a lot of the funding programs for clean energy have a, a basement level of uh, capacity level, like 500 kilowatts, if I think of most NRCAN programs. And, and at 500 kilowatts, you, you can't really do on the engineering side for a, a technology that's pre-commercial, like the iterative learning. Like this is a really painful step to go from you know, we have an installed capacity in Canada that's probably in you know, 50 kilowatts, 75 kilowatts, and we're going to have one project at the 500. Now, projects have been funded that have said we're going to do this, but they are stagnating, and they're stagnating, uh, to borrow Chris's phrase, on social acceptance because people aren't ready for that step to be taken in one shot. Like, there's a physical footprint of these renewable devices. I mean, it's renewables are great, but they're not as energy-dense as, as, as oil, and it's very visible because <laughs> we're extracting the energy from natural mechanisms that we're walking through or rowing through, I suppose, if I go back to my marine route. So I really think that we, we need to focus on a multitude. It, you know, at a government level, it needs to be able to number of different projects and the number of different places and the number of people that are exposed to the projects, not, you know, looking at this on a project-by-project basis, thinking about things in terms of kilowatts or kilowatt hours or, you know, mitigation in, in terms of tons of CO2 equivalent on again, on a project basis. So, yeah. Great, thanks. So uh, just as a sort of a bit of a time check, we're at 4.35. I know I've received one question so far in the Q&A. So this is a reminder to the, to the audience, to our participants, if you'd like, if you've got any questions, now is a good time to send them. I'm, I'm going to uh, give one more question to the, to the panel, and then, and then we'll pick up that one question that we've got so far. But if there are others, then hopefully we'll, we'll do those as well. So the, the, the next question uh, and I'm, I'm going to come to Christopher on this one is, so to achieve our net zero targets, there is massive global opportunity for clean energy innovators. Can the panelists highlight some of the most promising emerging companies and solutions in BC? And you can bring social acceptance into this as well, if you've got further to say on that, Christopher, if you wish to. Yeah, well, I, wa- I wanted to just speak to, um, I'm working on a research project right now with um, New Relationship Trust in Clean Energy BC. And we are going to be interviewing um, up to 92 First Nations communities and organizations about the socioeconomic benefits of renewable energy. And these are communities and organizations that already have uh, experience in the area. 
And I had a conversation with another researcher who studies social acceptance uh, of renewable energy. And, um, you know, we know that the way that you engage with a community, the way that you make decisions, the way that it's transparent and you distribute the benefits, we've known for 30 years that this is what impacts social acceptance. But what's really interesting in terms of the solutions in BC is that this researcher highlighted to me that First Nations communities uh, do the best practice already. So we've known that what the best practice is for 30 years, and First Nations communities are showing over and over again that they have that best practice nailed down. And so when I get asked um, about opposition I'll, to renewable energy, I'll say, well, actually, I'm, I'm working with communities that want to participate, that are willing um, sites for renewable energy. And so that's just one example of, um, I think, a promising emerging solution um, in BC, which is that we've got lots of opportunity for renewable energy, but we also have lots of communities that have the know-how in terms of how to do that engagement and how to do that governance and how to um, funnel those benefits to communities, which is something we're going to learn more about as we do research. But I suspect there are a lot of best practices there because there's a really big willingness to do more. Are you finding it's it's uh, there's a there's a variety of First Nations communities that have put renewables in, and I and I wonder this is a question for me. Are, are the ones that are sort of nearer the city centres, nearer to sort of the south, the south of the province, are they actually doing better than ones that are that are very far and remote? Because I've seen that in other type of data that the, the, the more remote they are, the harder it is for them. Or is that just me not knowing? That makes intuitive sense. We haven't gathered all the data yet, so that's something that we can ask of the data as we do some analysis. Um, but I think that it does make sense in terms of opportunity to find space on a grid and sell to the grid. But the other piece being that we learned early on in the feed-in tariff program that distribution systems were not designed for two-way power. And that meant that it was really, really hard to get some of these new projects on the grid because they were never designed for that City centers probably, I'm not 100% sure, they most likely have more modernized grids, which would allow, I think, more opportunities. Great. Uh, Brad, did you have any reflections on, on that question? It, there was a couple of things in there, both about sort of highlight the most promising emerging companies in BC, but also I think there's an interesting thread here. We're talking about the, the First Nations communities and their, their role. Yeah, it's interesting when you talked, you know, you brought the question, um, are we seeing more success in the remote communities, the ones that are closer into urban centers? Chris has got a good point about the um, electricity infrastructure. Um, I don't know if this is related, but, but what came to mind when you said that is, um, and I mentioned UQAD earlier, we're involved in a project with the Mwachimuchulik Nation, and the village of UQAD also um in English, we refer to it as Friendly Cove. It's where Captain Cook made first contact with indigenous peoples in the late 1700s, I guess. Well. Um, it's about right now today, as remote as you can get. But it, it's interesting when you talk to the people in the Mwachimuchula Nation, they're like, well, it's not a remote community. They're like, it's the center of the universe. <laughs> and, and at first you laugh, and then you realize, well, yes, in, 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 in that perspective, I can see why, right? And so I don't, I don't know. I'll be interested to see with Chris's study. Um, I, I kind of wonder if it's going to be the opposite, <laughs> if it's yeah. going to be the communities that are most isolated, most on their own, most independent, um, 
most ready for change um, to get off of because they're going to be relying on diesel generation. And I, I think that that inner burn to, to to make that shift is really what drives things. And I think the reason we don't see a lot of stuff in, in greater municipal centers is that a lot of us don't have that inner burn to to see that change or make that change. I think for smaller groups of like-minded people, not only do they, they, they share that motivation, but they can see how to make that change. It, it's right there. The options are a little bit fewer. There's more focus. And so there's a way forward, like in the shorter term. So anyway, that's not, I think, the question you were asking, but that's. No, no, that actually, no, that's a good. We got, we got a couple of questions going on simultaneously here, which is pretty cool. So Dave, take your pick. You can, you can answer both or one of them. <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> just reflecting on that, I, I, you know, I often have lamented that, you know, people in cities have lost touch with like, where industry is. So, you know, when I was growing up in Victoria, we had industry in Victoria. So now we don't sometimes see what goes on, you know, and actually create some of the wealth in the province. But it's also interesting when you get out to these smaller communities, not only do they have that, that, that relationship with the environment, but they actually know where everything comes from too. <laughs> like they know where they get their energy from because it's the diesel generator sometimes down just down the road. So, yeah, I, I would agree with uh, what Brad was saying, yeah, that, you know, sometimes that innovation comes because there is that better understanding of how all these things kind of fit together and a willingness to kind of try different things. So um, I also picking up a bit on what Chris was saying was um, we're actually starting to see the first um, the first pushing of renewable energy hitting our gas lines now. So it's been well kind of understood that electric um, systems have to innovate because we're seeing distributed generation hitting our systems. And we run the electric system in the interior of the province, but Fortis generally is an electric company. So it's kind of well understood, you know, how, how the electricity systems are evolving. But we're now starting to see as we've added a few extra, a few more, um, for renewable gas producers on our system. Now we're looking at flows that we weren't expecting. So it's actually also happening on the, um, on the gaseous systems that you could, you could see, you know, I actually have a slide where you talk about the transformation of the gas system. You know, we used to just bring gas from Northern BC down to Southern BC, but we could be producing, you know, hydrogen from biomass in the interior or, you know, from, Form of from electricity in the interior and bringing it out to the coast. So a realignment and and agriculture um, producing renewable gas, producing electricity and hydrogen on the coast here. There, it's causing a transformation in the way these systems are are being looked at, and um, I think we're only just starting to to see that. So I give a shout out to a couple of companies. Um, Evergen is a is a company that's out of Vancouver that start is building renewable gas plants. They've got a couple there. I think they own three in BC now and they're looking to go across Canada. And, you know, part of that, we're proud that we were one of the first companies, well, the first company in North America to have um, renewable gas in our system, but actually seeing developers locate here in BC is great. Um, in the hydrogen space, it, is a great company at HTEC, which is doing a lot of the engineering work around it. And then Econa, which is doing hydrogen pyrolysis. So that's not necessarily um, it, what they take natural gas and transform it into hydrogen and keep the, take the carbon out of it. We're also actually working with a Australian company called Hazer, which would 
do a similar kind of thing here in, in Vancouver. And, um, you know, if you look in the transport sector, a company like C-SPAN, they are running their ships on liquefied natural gas, but they're also looking at, um, they were partners with them on, on putting in a, a dock where we could actually deliver liquefied natural gas to shipping that goes overseas. And you think about that, well, it's natural gas, could be renewable natural gas, but could also be hydrogen. So, you know, as you know, it's important to innovate and not let the good, the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> That's what I always say. I mean, we, we have to make progress and sometimes people don't see renewable natural gas as necessarily getting us all the way there, but it, it actually does show us how to innovate and, and change things around. Yeah, no, thank, thanks, Dave. I, you, you said something there that just remind me I should maybe give a little plug for PIX at this point because one of the projects yes. PIX has going on just now is uh, it's, it's from Innovation Policy Meets Climate Policy, and it, it involves some researchers at uh, Simon Fraser University who are really mapping out the hydrogen ecosystem and all the companies involved in the different pieces of it. And it's fascinating to see the, 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 the variety of things that have to change and what are taking place. But with, with that... Uh, we have three questions so far in the in the chat, and, I, and and thank you to the participants. I don't actually see the names of the people who are asking the questions. They they come to me from 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 Ben, and thank you Ben for passing them on. Uh, the first one is uh, I think it's it's probably directed at Chris, and you may already have answered in some of your discussion about Vietnam, and and uh, but but let me give you the question, and you can see if there's anything else to add to it. It says. In the Q&A portion, can we explore more on the business models that Chris alluded to? I, I, I'm giving the question still here. I feel like we have potential to be market leaders in some of these areas, but some of the, some require significant investment that many small SMEs, small medium enterprises or small governments will never be able to justify due to risk, et cetera. How can we facilitate the kind of business models that you're, you're seeing elsewhere in the world, Chris? Yeah, um, and this is not a question that I can entirely answer. So some of the, the workshops that I've gone to where I've learned about this have been full of lawyers, for example, <laughs> on legal issues in the European Union, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, but um, I think the thing is that, um, well, there's a lot of different models. So, for example, um, PACE uh, is a model of financing where people can borrow on their municipal property taxes. And um, this would be for upgrade pro projects on their houses. So for energy efficiency or solar panels or something like that. So that's something that's been experimented with um, in the U.S. and it's now being implemented in Calgary, I believe. I heard that recently. Uh, so that's um, one example of a different form of funding. Um, these other examples are um, they're new and emerging. And in the same way that we had to figure out how to make cooperative models fit to the energy context, um, that around the world. And so, for example, in one of the studies I did early on was with uh, someone in New Zealand. They don't have cooperative models for energy. They have community trusts for energy. Uh, and they actually sometimes own their own distribution lines through a community trust. And then they get a payback for the distribution line that they're on. So what we need to do is be really creative and really nimble and bring in um experts on uh, financing and on legal structures here in order to figure out what those models are. But what we do know in the literature 
is that when people receive community benefits, when people are involved in the in the decision, when they have some form of control, and in, in, in that case, it could be equity ownership um, or some kind of voting capacity for the project and some ability to have a say or be engaged in the siting of the project, social acceptance goes up. And as Brad keeps mentioning, one of my favorite concepts is energy density. Energy density of renewables are quite a bit lower than those of fossil fuels and by orders of magnitude. And so if the more we rely on renewables, the more we're going to have landscape coverage of them, the more we're going to have communities involved. Um, so um, this is basically going to be governance and business and financial innovation. Great. Thanks, Krista. I'm going to move to the, the next question now, unless unless either Brad or Dave wants wants to come in on that one. I, I sort of I think I've got a question for both of you coming up. So uh, let me let me let me go to let me go to Dave. So this question uh, is, can hydrogen one day replace natural gas through the existing pipeline infrastructure down to residential use in B.C.? You've already spoken a little bit about this, but maybe you can go a little bit further with that question there. Yeah, you know, if I'd answered this question 10 years ago this way, one of my engineers probably would have choked me. But (laughs) actually, um, you know, being through the biogas um, innovation, I mean, when we started introducing biogas, there were engineers in the utility industry told us it would never work. It would rot out our pipes and cause all kinds of problems. Um, So. I would say I'd start with saying, yes, I believe it's possible. I'm not sure whether it will actually happen that way. I kind of mentioned one example as, you know, we may actually have our energy systems working differently. We might have a fuel cell on the side of our house rather than just burning hydrogen in a furnace, um, which seems to me to make more sense. But um, it it is possible um, to evolve our, our, the gaseous systems to using hydrogen and even surprisingly, the bulk of the pipe that we have today is actually um, polypropylene pipe. So it's not it's not subject to the same issues with hydrogen. Very it's a smaller molecule and it it likes to get out of things. So you don't want it to leave because it's a it's a it's a greenhouse gas like methane. So. Um, but one of the challenges with um, moving hydrogen around is actually keeping it in the pipe. But just so happens that most of the utility infrastructure here in BC is is that type of pipe. And when you get down to the smaller diameters, um, the larger pipe we have to deal with. But it it is possible. Will it will it happen that way? Um, I'm I'm not absolutely sure. I'd like to say that we don't prevent it from happening, and we you know because I. If it happens with electricity, that's fine. If it happens with gas, that's fine. I think they they both have their places. And we are seeing in places like the UK where they're actually um, creating um, like a hydrogen test community where they're piping hydrogen out to uh, folks' homes. So it it, it can, can happen. The way I think it'll happen initially is we'll, we'll probably target larger customers first because that's you get your most bang for your buck. And, you know, we might blend hydrogen into our distribution networks because most people wouldn't notice a little bit of hydrogen in their gas, but it actually would reduce the carbon intensity of the gas. So that's probably the way it'll start happening. But I, I would remind, because I know this is, this is most of the people attending are from Vancouver Island. Um, 
that the actually the first utility in BC was the gas company in Victoria, and it actually moved hydrogen through wooden pipelines. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll just, you know, people think of it as being all that bizarre that, oh, this new hydrogen thing, but that's essentially what we had in the 1860s. They were actually gasifying coal, and it that produces what we call town gas, which is which is hydrogen and carbon monoxide. And we're not suggesting we're going to move the we're not we're going to skip the carbon monoxide part, which is not very nice, and just stick with the hydrogen. So, yes, I think it's possible. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dave. Some great insights, there. and that's it's great to have experts on a panel to handle questions like that because it it is. It comes down to the material in the pipe in terms of whether, whether you can do this or not. So I, I'm going to do the last one to you, Brad, and it's not about marine. So, uh, but I, so you know, uh, but it's about heat pumps. So the question is, the shift to heat pumps is, is supposedly using clean energy, mostly hydroelectric power. And the question is, is this shift actually sustainable? How does the change to heat pumps work across the Rockies? where there is much less hydropower. So I guess it's a question about, can those guys over in Alberta do this? <laughs> what do you well, think? yeah, I mean, I, and you, you can follow me up, Chris, because, because now we're getting into your area more than mine, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Rockies West. Rockies. <laughs> uh, is it sustainable? Um, well, I mean, heat pumps use electricity, right? So in BC, that comes from a hydroelectric supply and in, in Alberta, the mix is different. Uh, I believe we have some wind capacity in Alberta. Um, that capacity has to be backed up, and I believe that they rely on natural gas. How am I doing so far, Chris? I think you're doing pretty well. They're, they're transforming. Okay, right. so, we're yeah. a lot of coal, of course, in, in, in Alberta, but trying to get off it. So it's, yeah, it's, and shift over. So, I mean, yeah, if everybody was going to install heat pumps. I was actually wondering about this the other day, because I remember going to work downtown on the bus, and the, the, the ads were trying to get me to switch over to natural gas for my hot water tank, and, and now I'm – Going, going to work in my car and I'm looking at the ad on the bus and it's trying to get me to switch back up to electricity. So yeah, I mean, if more people start using that electricity and it starts to exceed supply, then, then we have to find ways to meet demand. Um, and, and we're going to end up burning a fuel or burning coal, burning natural gas. I'm actually, the question reminds me of like the mid 2000s on Vancouver Island. One of the four cable connections between Vancouver Island and the mainland was nearing end of life. Um, and the growth forecast that BC Hydro had, and this is around the time of the 2004 integrated energy plan, were showing that by 2007, um, there, there was going to be a, a supply shortfall. So Vancouver Island was, was in trouble. And this is what led to a scheme to have a, it's like a $300 million gas, natural gas fired uh, plant at uh, Duke Point. Um, that eventually got scrapped and I think they just replaced the cable and that was a little cheaper. I think it was like 240 million. Um, but when when these things are forecast, like if they knew that this was going to happen in Alberta, they have to find a way. And it takes time to spin up a, a new source. And in fact, uh, you said it wasn't a marine energy question, but that uh, period of time in the early 2000s, when this 2007 like forecast was coming about a shortfall in Vancouver Island, that led to the BC Hydro Wave Energy Demonstration Project. I don't think anybody knows about this. Uh, but there was going to be a wave energy plant off of Euclid and then another one up near Winter Harbor. And that was going to be an investigation of how to meet this, this, uh, this shortfall. So, and it would have been the first, uh, such demonstration project in the world, uh, if it had gone through. This is around 2001. So, um, I think I'm, I think I'm getting the question that the, the question's pointing to a danger and yeah, danger exists. <laughs> I, I, may, I might just add that there's, 
there are gaseous heat pumps as well. I mean, if you've ever had a propane fridge in your RV, that that's essentially a, a heat pump that works in reverse. And we, you know, one of the things that gas has been so cheap, people haven't bothered to to try and step up the amount of energy efficiency because it's not worth it. But as we put a price on carbon, I think we'll start to see higher efficiencies in gas appliances actually become more prevalent as well. It's just, you know, I used to lead the energy efficiency group at Fortis and it's frustrating. You know, people have a 65% efficient furnace and you could get at that time 80 to 95%, but they didn't want to spend an extra $2,000 on technology. So, you know, that, that, that's one of the things is we start to put more price on polluting that it's going to drive different behaviors too. Well, unfortunately, as usual, we get into great conversations and then we run out of time. So, but, uh, we're now at a couple of minutes to go. I'm, my instructions are that I should now give a, a short wrap up and I, 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 forgive me if I don't capture the richness of the conversation that we've had, but I, some of the things that really came through to me were the discussion about place-based, uh, solutions and hubs and the fact, and the idea of needing a new business model to really move the dial on renewable energies, uh, and that I mean, business model has to engage has to engage communities. That really came through strongly as a message uh, all around. We also had lots of lots of great discussion about changing infrastructure and great technical insights and sort of the size of molecules and and, and, and pipe materials and uh, other other aspects of marine uh, marine uh, energy. Uh, but at that, I, I'm going to stop because I've got one minute, and I think I have to go back to Terry. Uh, if that's correct, Terry, did you have some you have some closing words for us? Thank you, Chris. It actually goes over to Ben, and he'll wrap it all up for us at the end of the session. Thank you. Great. So thank you to all of our speakers for your time today. Thank you to DXC Technologies for sponsoring this important conversation. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, RBC, and our Catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rising Economy 2022. And thank you to everyone who joined us for the conference this year. We'll see you next year. Thank you.